I want to begin by talking about an epidemic that occurred in Japan in 1858. Early in July in 1858, a U.S. steamship, it was called the USS Mississippi, uh, which is one of the first steamships in the U.S. Navy, Navy, sailed into the port of Nagasaki on the island of Kyushu after departing Shanghai a week before. Only five years earlier, the entry of this U.S. ship into the port of Nagasaki or any Japanese port would have been unthinkable because the Japanese government, headed by the Tokugawa shogun, refused entry. So I was talking about this U.S. ship, Mississippi, that entered into Nagasaki. And I wanted to make the point that this entry of a foreign ship into Japanese waters was a really new event. Um, four years earlier, Commodore Perry had sailed into the Tokyo Bay with a fleet of gunboats and had demanded that the Japanese government open to foreign contact. And so uh, it was only in the aftermath that you had ships enter uh, into Japanese waters, and there was a great deal of foreign tension. Now, uh, even as the, Nakasagi, the Mississippi arrived in Nagasaki, there were ongoing negotiations with the Japanese government and uh, the U.S. representative, his name was Townsend Harris. So this was a time of really heightened um, tension between Japan and the U.S. in particular, but generally with Western governments. Significant for my topic, which is cholera, is that when the USS Mississippi arrived in Nagasaki, it had on board at least one sailor who was infected with the disease cholera. And in within two weeks of the Mississippi's arrival in Japan, dozens of people in that city had fallen ill. And then over the course of the next months, the disease spread throughout Japan. By early September, cholera had reached Edo, which is the pre-modern name for the modern city of Tokyo. Uh, this city was the capital of the shogun's government, and it was already one of the largest cities in the world, having over a million uh, residents. Modern historical demographers estimate that in uh, 1858, perhaps 40,000 people died of cholera during the summer, and that's roughly 4% of the population. And there were similar death tolls uh, elsewhere in Japan. Well, in my talk today, I want to use 19th century Japan's experience of cholera as a kind of case study to explore how societies deal with unfamiliar and devastating epidemic disease. While my own interest, because I'm a historian of Japan, is in exploring the cultural meaning and consequences of this specific disease, cholera, for the specific society, that is Japan, I think this case study can be useful for thinking in cross-cultural terms about how people make sense of the experience of epidemic disease and how epidemic disease can affect social and political change and reveal social tensions. So I want to look closely at two of the epidemics that Japan experienced in the 19th century, two, two of the cholera epidemics, uh, one that occurred in 1858, and then another that occurred in 1879. Um, I put this map up, and I can just uh, take a moment to show you some of the places I'm talking about. There's the city of Nagasaki. That's where cholera was first introduced in 1858. And then it traveled northward, and this is Tokyo, uh, which was the major uh, population center um, in that period. And here I have a slightly funky uh, illustration of the Mississippi itself. Uh, it was a steamer. It was actually one of the ships that accompanied 
uh, Commodore Perry on his uh, initial journey to Japan. So it was well known in uh, Japan because of its associations with Perry. So then its arrival bringing disease um, you know, was another uh, sort of moment in rising uh, anti-foreign sentiment. And here we see the port of Nagasaki uh, circa 1858. And you can see this is an image from 1858. And uh, as I say here, it's a, a site of a crematorium. Well, these are actually um, caskets. Uh, caskets in Japan were not sort of long rectangular boxes. They were actually this shape. And people were put in them in a, um, in a fetal position. Um, so the interest of this uh, is in this you know, overwhelmed crematorium that so many people have died, they can't kind of keep up with the, uh, the uh, disposal of the bodies. Okay, and here I just have a very simple chart showing on the one hand um, the worldwide pandemics and their course and then their correlation with Japan. So you can see here um, that the um, exposure in 1858 came as a result of the third pandemic um, of cholera in the 19th century world. Well, I should begin by saying uh, that Japan's experience of cholera as a new disease in the 19th century was by no means unique. Cholera had been present on the South Asian subcontinent for centuries. The microorganism that causes the disease, which was first identified, as you probably know, by Robert Koch, Koch in 1884, flourished in the warm waters of India. And it most, most often reached humans uh, through the water, through infected water, but also through food that had come into contact with water, and also from hand-to-mouth contact, from person-to-person -person contact. The microorganism passed through the human digestive tract and then re-entered water supplies uh, through human waste. So cholera was well established there in the subcontinent, but it began to move worldwide uh, following um, the roots of imperialist com contact and of uh, expanding international commerce in the 19th century. So the establishment, for example, of British authority over India, which increased human contact, of course, made possible as well the spread of this disease. So we can call the cholera pandemics of the 19th century the child of imperialism and the child of international commerce. Um, now the first pandemic, let me go back, the first pandemic of this century uh, began in 1817, as my little chart here shows, when India experienced a major outbreak. The disease then spread through Afghanistan and Persia, then reached Russia by 1830, and then moved to Northern Europe and North America, and then finally to Southern Europe and South America. So it took the disease, uh, you know, about um, 15, 16 years to kind of spread around the world. This was the slowest of the 19th century pandemics. The ones that occurred later spread more quickly because railway travel and steamship travel had become more common, making possible the, the more rapid spread of the disease. Now, when Europeans were at first exposed to cholera in the early part of the 19th century, they were horrified by its virulence and also by the set of symptoms that characterize this disease. The mortality rates of early pandemics were staggering. Roughly half the people infected with the disease uh, in the 19th century died and died very quickly. Moreover, uh, the manner of death by cholera uh, proved particularly disturbing. 
the infection, infection with the disease brought sudden and overwhelming attacks of uncontrollable uh, vomiting and diarrhea. The rapid loss of bodily fluids could cause death in a matter of hours, but these were often agonizing and humiliating hours. As dehydration progressed, uh, cramps convulsed every muscle of the body, sometimes causing victims to scream uh, in pain. You know, 19th century uh, very often romanticized death by tuberculosis. Uh, and if you've read much uh, 19th century literature, you've probably uh, encountered this vision of people dying this rather beautiful death, becoming whiter and paler and more beautiful and more spiritual as they, uh, the disease of tuberculosis progresses. So if death by tuberculosis was envisioned in romantic terms, death by cholera was really its antithesis. People died as shriveled wrecks with bluish skin, sunken eyes, protruding teeth, um, these symptoms that accompanied very uh, fast process of dehydration. Uh, the French term death from cholera a dog's death, or the blue terror, uh, pointing to the humiliating uh, state that people died in, as well as this sort of ghastly blue experience, uh, appearance. Now, Japan's first exposure to cholera actually came in 1822 uh, during the first pandemic. Uh, the disease seems to have moved from the Korean Peninsula since the first outbreak was actually in the city of Shimonoseki. Oh, sorry. And this is uh, the city of Shimonoseki is right here. It's you, Korea doesn't appear here, but it's just a very brief leap from uh, Shimonoseki to the Korean Peninsula. Historians of medicine speculate that the disease moved from the Korean Peninsula uh, to Shimonoseki, probably by some Chinese trader. Um, but what's really interesting here is that while there were substantial outbreaks in Western Japan, for some reason, the disease stopped its spread. It moved upwards here, but stopped before it reached Edo. Uh, and there's no explanation. It's one of those medical mysteries. But um, the, um, uh, the tremendous loss of life that characterized the 1858 uh, epidemic was, uh, did not occur. OK. Well, as I said, this was a new disease. Uh, Japanese physicians didn't immediately know what it was, and so there's this kind of interesting uh, process of attempting to name the disease that occurred. They initially called it, uh, they coined a new term uh, in Japanese, they called it baku, bakushabio, and this literally means, it's written with these three characters here, um, sudden vomiting disease, so they're sort of naming it by the set of symptoms that accompanied it. Now there were Dutch in Nagasaki, the official uh, Dutch trading expedition, and they informed the uh, Japanese officials that this disease was known as cholera uh, in Europe. And so uh, this term cholera is, uh, becomes known in Japan, but there's an interesting process of what we might call naturalization or indigenization that happens. And so um, one of the terms that becomes very popular for the disease is kodori. And it's a kind of play on words, I think. Uh, Koreda would be the Japanese pronunci pronunciation of cholera, if you romanized it, uh, and korori. But this is also um, a bit of uh, 
onomatopoeia, and it, is this, it describes something falling. So as I say, it's something like thump. The sound of something falling is korori. Uh, and I think this relates to this idea that you became ill with cholera and you collapsed very quickly. So this korori is supposed to be the fall of people collapsing uh, as the disease progresses. And it was a very popular way of describing the disease was actually mika korori, three days and thump disease, three days and you fall over disease. Um, now, with, in the case of Japanese, you can um, write a word. This is a, a phonetic writing system called katakana. These are phonetic symbols. Uh, but you can also apply Chinese characters to them. And in this case, the Chinese characters are being used for their sound, but also they carry meaning. Uh, so there's a kind of interesting way in which um, the people that coin these terms are using Chinese characters to apply some kind of meaning to this attempt to transcribe a word of foreign origin. And what I'm interested in is the Chinese characters that they chose. I mean, they could have chose many different things. But in this case, in writing korori, one very popular method of inscription was to use this character, uh, which means fox, and this character means wolf, and then this character means diarrhea. So obviously this is uh, pointing to the symptoms of the disease, but these, these animal references are really interesting. The fox in Japanese folklore was considered a kind of trickster figure who went around um, tricking humans into doing uh, things. Their acts were sort of magical and inexplicable while the wolf was frightening, a fierce animal. So I think this kind of uh, points to um, the symptom of the disease, but also the kind of um, attributes of the disease, that it was uh, very severe in its symptoms, but also inexplicable. The newness of it is foregrounded, I think, by the reference to the fox, the trickster figure. And then another way of writing uh, korori is with this one, uh, this character means tiger, this character means wolf, and this character means badger. And I think both tiger and wolf are used, again, to point to the severity of the symptoms of disease. And the badger, again in Japanese folklore, uh, was a kind of trickster figure, an animal that went around uh, deceiving humans and causing them to make uh, sometimes uh, uh, disastrous mistakes. And then one final, final bit of uh, nomenclature, another way of writing, in this case, koreda uh, is the way you would read this. Koreda is tiger, and these two symbols together mean attack. So uh, this disease is something like a tiger that attacks you, overwhelms you, um, and uh, potentially kills you. Now, after this initial introduction of cholera in 1822, cholera disappeared from Japan for 36 years. And when it was reintroduced by the USS Mississippi in 1858, Japan was in a state of profound political turmoil. Because of the popular unrest that had followed the forced opening of Japan uh, by Commodore Perry. So what's very interesting is that people quickly made the connection between the arrival of this US ship and the spread of this disease, but lacking any understanding of its infectious nature, they came up with other explanations, but also ones which associated the disease with the foreign presence. One early account 
of how people in the city of Nagasaki were making um, sense of um, this, the 1858 um, cholera epidemic comes from this guy here. He was a Dutch naval uh, physician, and his name was Pompey von Mietervoort. Uh, and he was hired by the Japanese government, the government of the shogun, to come to Nagasaki uh, and to teach w modern Western medicine to young Japanese samurai. So these guys are actually his students. Uh, and this was part of a kind of self-strengthening program that the Bakufu adopted to meet the foreign threat that they perceived in the aftermath of Perry's arrival. So uh, von Mietervoort was part of a kind of modernizing enterprise undertaken uh, by the shogun's government. So he was there in Nagasaki in 1858. And in his memoirs, he talks about, at some length, um, the reaction to the 1858 epidemic in Nagasaki. And this is what he writes, and I'm quoting here. And he said, the citizens in the wake of the introduction of the disease were completely overwhelmed. It was rumored that the cause of the disease was that the company, country had been opened by foreigners. And the attitude of the populace to foreigners changed. And now they looked at us as their enemies. And so he's talking about the kind of treatment that foreigners in Nagasaki received. Now we have another account, which comes from this guy here. He was one of uh, Pompey's students. His name is Matsumoto Ryojun. And he went on to become a very prominent doctor and prominent public health official. And he also addressed um, the uh, 1858 epidemic in his memoirs. And he wrote that it was widely rumored that foreigners in the city had gone about poisoning the wells. And that it was this poisoning of the wells that was leading to the spread of sickness. Um, and he wrote that there were uh, threats made on the life of every foreigner, uh, even somebody like Pompey, who was there at the invitation of the Japanese government. And so um, Matsumoto talks about how uh, he and his fellow students would not let Pompey go out on the city streets for fear that he would be attacked. Now another uh, account of the 1858 um, epidemic comes from an ordinary Japanese resident of Nagasaki. Um, and he offers a really vivid description of what goes on as the disease spreads mm -hmm. around the city. And so I'd like to just read this to you. It's a little bit long, but I think it's kind of interesting. Um, and the guy writes, of the 80 districts of the city, there was not one that did not have deaths each day. And once one family member died, one after another, their relatives would die. Those who came to, the vi to visit the sick also died, and so people stopped visiting. When you met someone on the street, you would offer mutual congratulations that you were both still alive, and all anyone spoke of was the disease. If you went out, you were sure to see two or three funerals, and everyone was fearful. It was as though we were in a state of war. When a funeral procession passed by, all the, street, the houses on a street would shut their windows. And sometimes people would light firecrackers, and at night people would shoot guns into the air. This was in order to frighten away the plague deity. Every house pasted charms upon their door and tied up sacred ropes. Everyone was trying to be careful of their health, so lights in the entertainment districts were extinguished, and there was no music or singing to be heard anywhere in the city. 
Some people made straw or wooden boats, and they placed on them dolls with faces like foreigners, and they pushed these boats out to the sea. Every di district tried to find a method to end the epidemic, using every ritual known to expel disease. Festival floats and portable shrines were brought out. Bells were rung, drums were beat, and every sh shrine was filled day in and day out with the faithful. And that's the end of his description. What I think is really interesting here is that we find a really vivid description of cultural impact of the disease and of the desperate attempts of Nagasaki residents to resolve the epidemic through the strategies they thought would work. What I'd like to foreground here is the kind of complicated understanding of this disease that emerged in this moment of crisis. So we see in this last account that I read, the rather lengthy one, another reference to this linking of the disease uh, to the foreign presence in the city. But we also see that the populace adopted really traditional methods to resolve the epidemic. Uh, and so they kind of brought this new disease into well-established paradigms of making sense of sickness. Now before the introduction of cholera, uh, the most prevalent infectious disease in Japan was smallpox. And this was present in Japan from the ancient period, and it was widely believed, generally believed, that smallpox was the result of the arrival of a plague god. And so there were a variety of sort of strategies that emerged over time that were either designed to make this plague, smallpox-bearing deity, the smallpox god, not come or once he had arrived and infected someone, to keep him happy, to placate him, so that he would leave without causing anyone's death. Uh, so up here, these first three, uh, these three images here, one, two, and three, these are all example of smallpox charms that were designed to ward away the disease. Uh, you can see in all this one, this one, and this one that they make heavy use of the color red. Uh, and red had associations with smallpox, so although people were not quite sure why it had an efficacious effect. One theory was that the plague deity liked red, and therefore if you put up charms using red, he was happy and therefore didn't kill anyone. The other theory was that he in fact hated red, and so if you put it up, he would keep away. But either way, people used this color red. Uh, now these figures that we see here are, uh, as you can see, they're sort of martial figures, warrior-type figures that are drawn either from folklore or from Japanese history. Uh, so this guy here is uh, Momotaro, and he's from a Japanese folk story, and it tells, it's kind of a fairy tale. He goes out and conquers an ogre. Uh, but this sort of magical associations with him, or his ability to conquer an ogre, uh, sort of lend himself to this charm where he's, uh, I think the theory goes, is going to, to bring his martial prowess against um, the smallpox deity. Okay, so this is another uh, smallpox char charm, and this, has, this is a famous warrior from the 11th century. His name is uh, Genji uh, Tomotane. And what's interesting about him is that in the 11th century, he was exiled to a small island. And while he was in residence there, there was a terrible smallpox epidemic. But somehow it didn't affect the island where he was exiled to. And so people began to believe that he had some kind of magical power to ward off smallpox. And so he became a very popular figure on um, 
smallpox charms. Uh, and then here we actually can see this martial figure uh, fighting off the smallpox deities represented here. And you can see that he's covered with the red pock marks of the disease. Now, this is not a smallpox charm. This is actually a um, cholera charm that dates from 1858. And it has a series of uh, sort of magical uh, animals on it, uh, a phoenix, a um, turtle, um, a phoenix, a turtle, a tiger, and a dragon. And the directions here, the text of the charm, tell you to take four copies of this, paste it on your house at every direction, and it would ward off the arrival of, of cholera. It would protect the household magically. And there was just this tremendous production of these kinds of charms uh, in Japan in 1858. So they take the, the sort of ways that have been used to deal with smallpox and apply them to this new disease. Um, and so here's another uh, smallpox pox charm. And what's really interesting to me as a historian of Japan is the kind of choices of protective figures that appear on uh, the different charms. So this guy here is a Japanese deity named uh, Sukunabiko. Uh, and in the uh, Japanese uh, mytho-history, the account of the age of the gods, um, he's supposed to have gone off to what's simply named as another world the other world. That's the, that's the words that are used in the text. But people reading this uh, 8th century mytho-history in the 19th century associate this other world with Europe and America. And so there's an interesting way in which this deity that's associated with foreign lands is incorporated into this charm to ward off a disease that's supposed to be the product of foreign countries or to have been brought by foreign countries. So there's an interesting way in which it uh, sort of picks up on that motif of the disease uh, as the product of foreign contact. And here's just one more cholera charm. And I think this one's also very interesting. You have here this uh, thumbprint, which is, or handprint, I should say, which is supposed to be the handprint of this guy here. He, he's a, another sort of famous warrior. Uh, from the 16th century in this case, and his name is Kato Kiyomasa. And I was thinking long and hard about why is this guy used as a kind of protective figure against cholera? And I think there's two possibilities. One is that he was the warlord of the city of Kagoshima, which is in Kyushu and not very far from Nagasaki. So there may be some kind of regional association. But the other thing that's very interesting about Kato Kiyomasa is that he was famous for suffering from leprosy. Uh, and he was uh, gradually disfigured by the course of the disease. And one of the things that he did, because he himself was a sufferer of leprosy, was to build shelters for leprosy sufferers in 16th century Japan. So there may be a kind of connection here between this kind of idea that he has some kind of relationship to one uh, contagious disease, that is leprosy, got connections to the place, that is Kyushu, and he's also a famous military hero who can ward off disease, and so he's brought to bear on this particular charm. Now, if you think back um, to the, um, that long account of a Nagasaki re resident, uh, that I read, you might remember that he makes thing, mention of things like people shooting off firecrackers, 
firing guns into the air, beating drums. And these were all activities designed to drive away plague deities who were supposed to be un not fond of loud noises and the like. Similarly, he makes mention of performing festival-type activities, uh, parades or processions through the streets. And this was also something that was used to deal with uh, epidemics of smallpox. But we know that in the wake of the introduction of cholera in 1858, people resorted to these kinds of things as well. And this image shows a cholera festival in the city of Kyoto, which was the imperial capital. It's there in uh, western Japan. And so we can sort of identify um, the kinds of, uh, uh, these are sort of um, tall, float-like objects that people carried. And they all have certain kinds of religious significance. So we see this kind of wholesale production of or carrying out of festivals designed to ward off the deities. Now, I don't want to suggest, however, that uh, the response to the introduction of cholera was solely um, religious or spiritual in nature. The new disease also very quickly became the object of medical discourse. So we find doctors in, uh, working in uh, both Western medicine, their current understanding of Western medicine, as well as traditional medical practice, trying to come up with treatments for, for the disease. And so we see the circulation of these kinds of broadsheets, uh, it's a kind of an early form of the newspaper, offering people medical advice. And this particular one was actually printed at the command of the shogun's government. And he ordered it to be distributed um, around the country to the populace, offering them medical advice. And this particular broadsheet suggests that people wrap their stomachs in cotton or wool cloth. Uh, and it advises that they drink a concoction of a, a particular kind of alcoholic beverage called shochu and water and sugar. Uh, and what's kind of interesting is it states that this kind of advice comes via a French doctor. So there's a kind of Western authority that's evoked to explain the advice. Now one final um, uh, thing I'd like to mention about the 1858 epidemic before I move forward is that uh, it is not only foreigners who became the object of popular criticism in 1858. And when we read the broadsheets that um, deal with the epidemic, one persistent theme that emerges is criticism of people uh, who were profiting because of the disease. And this criticism often took the form of satire. So this is an example of one of these satirical broadsheets attacking people profiting from others' suffering. Uh, and it uh, depicts uh, a mythological bird, which is called Sugami Dori. And the thing about Sugami Dori was it was supposed to be a, a bird that could fly back and forth between the world of men and the world of gods. But if you write Sugami Dori with different Chinese characters, it can mean profiting, to make a profit. So there's a kind of play on words here between the heavenly bird and the profiting bird. And I don't know how easy it is to discern this, but the body parts of this uh, bird are made up of certain kinds of recognizable figures. So for example, this is supposed to be his beak is made up of a crematorium worker. Because remember, the crematoriums are working overtime during this period. And then down in its breast, we see a priest. And this is his alms box. So priests are making off very well as well, because people are going 
to temples and making donations. And then his tales are made up of the advertisements of um, pharmacies, because pharmacies were making a nice profit too, selling various kinds of cholera cure, uh, cures. And then the text tells us that its uh, belly here has no feathers. Uh, and that is because this, in, in this depicts, it tells us, uh, a used clothes dealer who is buying up all the clothes of dead people and then selling them. And so it's a kind of satirical comment upon you know, the fact that even in times of disease, some people are doing quite well. So I want to turn now to look at my second example of cholera in 19th century Japan. And this is the uh, 18th, I'm particularly interested in the 1879 epidemic. Uh, but I've got this chart that shows um, rates of uh, infectious disease in Japan. Uh, so we see cholera, dysentery, typhus, and smallpox. And uh, one of the things that's quite interesting, if we take a look at, this is um, my next case study, 1879. You see that over 160,000 people died. And what's uh, quite staggering is uh, the number of those infected who died, which is over 100,000. And we see a similar thing here in the next great period of cholera, 1886, 155,000, uh, more than 155,000 people uh, were infected and 108,000 of those died. And so we can contrast this with something like um, uh, dysentery, where you had very high rates of infection during times of epidemic, over 108,000, for example. But the rate of those who died is, small, is much smaller. So cholera has this really special status in the second half of the 19th century, although there's lots of new epidemic diseases that are uh, introduced to Japan because of the um, uh, first period of foreign contact. But uh, no disease had the kind of staggering impact that cholera did. So it has this kind of special status in the popular imagination. Now, in the 20 years that have passed between um, eight, 1858 and 1879, the political situation in Japan has changed dramatically. Uh, in 1868, the government of the shogun was overthrown, and a new government was established um, in Japan under the emperor whose name is Meiji. Uh, he's the first Japanese emperor of the modern period. Uh, the political power, however, in the uh, 1870s and 1880s was really in the hands of a group of young samurai who had been influential in overthrowing um, the government of the Tokugawa shogun. And early on in the 1870s, this group of young samurai revolutionaries uh, made it their goal to transform Japan into a powerful and modern nation state. They wanted to create an economy uh, based upon industry and a large army uh, that was uh, capable, potentially, of resisting uh, foreign encroachment upon Japan. So this epidemic of 1879 arrived uh, then as government leaders were trying to fundamentally alter Japanese society. And they were engaged in this really overwhelming uh, process of reform that included things like uh, implementing a new tax system, creating a conscript army, creating a system of compulsory education, building railways, building a telegraph system, and so on. And what's important uh, for my topic is that 
medical reform was a really important part of this program of modernization. Government leaders believed that Japanese lagged far behind Europeans and North Americans in bodily strength and health. And they were greatly concerned by what they perceived to be um, high levels of infant mortality and high levels of um, disease. And they believed that healthy workers and healthy soldiers and healthy women capable of producing healthy babies were a com crucial component to national strength. And so improving health became a really important part of the plan of modernizing Japan. And to that end, the government engages in um, a variety of things. They created new medical schools, new schools of midwifery, new nursing schools to train, tra train a new medical elite. Um, they created public hospitals and encouraged people to abandon existing forms of treatment like uh, Chinese herbal medicine or acupuncture and to make use of um, Western medicine. And they also tried, uh, in a very sustained way, to address the personal habits of the populace, urging them, for example, to eat meat and bread was the idea that these were more nutritious uh, food things and would make people stronger and bigger. Uh, they encouraged people to wash with soap and to uh, brush their teeth, to abandon uh, traditional kinds of dress and hairstyles. And all of this was in the name of uh, uh, producing a more hygienic, uh, healthier lifestyle. Uh, well, um, the uh, cholera epidemic of 1879 was the first great epidemic faced by the new government, and it became a really important testing ground for these new policies that were aimed at improving health. Uh, Nagayo Sensei was a Japanese official who's regarded as the founder of Japan's public health system, once declared that cholera made public health possible in Japan. So his point was that cholera and fear of the disease created the social conditions where the government was able to affect lots of radical change. Uh, now, this epidemic I'm interested in, in 1879, um, was part of the fourth uh, pandemic of um, of the 19th century. Uh, and that pandemic began in 1877. What's really interesting, keeping up with this theme of the associations in the popular mind between the disease and foreigners, is that when the uh, Japanese foreign minister heard that cholera was on the move, uh, he announced that Japan wanted to begin inspecting foreign ships entering Japanese harbors. And the idea was they wanted to avoid what had occurred in 1858 by finding out if there were infected sailors. Now, what's really interesting is that under the treaty system that existed between Japan and European countries, Japan didn't have this right. Um, this treaty system is often referred to as a set of unequal treaties because the Western partners in treaties had a set of prerogatives that were denied Japan. Uh, and so, Japanese ships that sailed into San Francisco could be inspected by American customs inspectors or public health officials, but the reverse was not the case. And so the Japanese attempts to ward off the disease in these ways uh, became impossible because of the particular inter international context um, of the 19th century. Now, the point of origin of the 1879 epidemic is not clear, 
but the first major outbreak occurred on the island of Kyushu again. Um, let's see. And it occurred uh, right, let's see. It, it occurred in this area. And what's interesting about the place it occurred is that it was actually a hot spring resort. It was a resort town where people went to take medicinal waters. You know, you would bathe in this lovely hot spring. It's uh, immensely pleasure, pleasurable, I should say. Um, and it probably somebody who was infected in, by the disease in some other site came there, uh, and then they began to spread it. And you can imagine a hot spring resort. It's the ideal place to spread the waterborne disease that is cholera. And because it was a resort town, you had people, travelers from all over the country there for pleasure trips. And when the disease broke out, they tried to quickly go home. So this created the kind of ideal situation for the rapid spread of the disease all around the country. So the government's response um, was to issue a set of new regulations. And these were called the Provisional Regulations for the Prevention of Cholera. And I've provided a translation um, in your resource binder of the uh, 1880 regulations, which are the sort of revised uh, version of the 1879 one. But what's interesting to me is that these uh, set of regulations that were uh, issued by the Japanese government were organized by two principles. One was the isolation of the infected. So the regulations said that if a doctor made a diagnosis of cholera, they had to immediately uh, notify local officials and the local police force. And local police were supposed to take the sick person to a quarantine hospital, uh, remove them from the local community, and then the household was supposed to be sealed off to outside contact, actually sort of roped off so that nobody could go in. And then um, yellow paper with the, the words cholera were supposed to be pasted on every door so that the, the household would be isolated. And the interesting thing about these institutions that were called isolation hospitals is that they were never envisioned to be places of treatment. They were meant to be places to isolate the sick. So there were actually no doctors or nurses in, pres in uh, present. And basically, people were taken there um, to die. And so they became very quickly associated with um, abandonment and horrible death. And there was a great deal of tension surrounding attempts to remove people to quarantine hospitals. Now, the other thing that was uh, central to these uh, regulations of 1879 was inspection. Uh, so the police and local officials were empowered to stop people on the streets when there was a cholera outbreak and to search their uh, person and their luggage. They were allowed to enter households where cholera was um, uh, suspected to see if there was actually anybody who was sick. Uh, and so there was a kind of way in which cholera created the situation where by the new state inserted itself into people's lives in a way that was truly unprecedented. Uh, Nagayo Sensei, the guy that I spoke about a moment ago, who's kind of considered the father of public health in Japan, wrote about the policies that emerged in 1879 that our policy was that in order to save the greatest number of people, we did not have time to worry about the few. And so there was this kind of purposeful sense that if, you know, individuals had to suffer 
uh, it was worth it because they were protecting the larger population and they were quite self-conscious about that. Okay. Well, I want to, I know I'm running out of time, but just let me quickly run through a couple of these illustrations and then I'll sum up. Um, I want to, to suggest some of the popular responses to the government policy of 1879, but first I want to look at a couple of images that suggest the kind of new understanding of cholera that came in place in 1879. And this is a woodblock print from 1880, and it's entitled Expelling the Disease. And you can see here, do you, can you guess what this is supposed to be? It's supposed to be cholera, right? You see it, it's a, I believe it has the head of a lion and the body of a tiger, or perhaps vice versa. And what's interesting is these two figures in Western dress. Can you guess who this guy is? He's a policeman, actually. This is the garb of a, a Japanese policeman of the day. And this guy is probably either a local official or a doctor, and they are spraying disinfectant on the cholera represented by this animal. So we see here, you know, this kind of uh, very traditional iconography, but the kind of new way of dealing with the disease, uh, so that we don't see famous warriors drawn from folklore fighting the disease, but rather a policeman and a doctor. Uh, and here is another uh, uh, kind of satirical print called Exterminating Cholera. And we see here the body of a tiger, the head of the lion. This is supposed to be the testicles of a badger, who in Japan were always associated with massive testicles. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and you can see him sort of attacking the populace. And um, the, here you have a martial hero uh, fighting off the disease. And his little flag here says, Hygiene Committee. And the hygiene committee were these local groups of doctors and policemen that were empowered to go and inspect homes. And I, I, the, there's a second half to the print, which I was not able to see, but this is a bottle of disinfectant. And so the martial hero is spraying disinfectant upon the cholera uh, disease. Um, and uh, then we see, those are the kind of interesting, funny, uh, sort of public health message, but here we also have sort of more serious ones. This was a home ministry publication. Uh, you can see it's qu quite cheaply printed, uh, just black and white, uh, but the title is How to Prevent Cholera, and it gives people all kinds of hints. So wear clean clothes, uh, don't work too hard, keep your house well ventilated, don't eat fish or fresh fruit, uh, and so on. So. Um, healthy hints to avoid cholera. Um, and I'll skip the rest in the, the interest of time. Um, but what these illustrations suggest, I think, is that the understanding of cholera that had oriented responses in 1858, in which it was viewed as the workings of a, the result of the workings of a plague deity, and in which the response was then to use charms and religious rites to prevent the disease or alleviate it, that has largely been supplanted uh, in 1879. And so we see a really different understanding, a kind of more modern understanding of the disease etiology in place. Rather than charms and religious rites, it is disinfectant, hygiene, good sanitation 
that is represented as the means to counter disease. And although the iconography of magical beasts and martial he heroes is still utilized in these prints, um, they seem to be convenient images that are used uh, rather self-consciously as symbols with ironical or satirical intent. So the belief element now seems to be really gone. I just very want, quickly want to talk about a phenomenon called cholera riots. Um, so these images that we just looked at suggest that government policy was successful in very quickly reorienting the popular understanding of the disease. Uh, but I don't want to suggest that this meant that there was acceptance or compliance or even uh, complete understanding of government policy. Uh, the 1879 epidemic was in fact accompanied by a new kind of social event and these came to be called cholera riots. Uh, and again, in your resource binder, I've included some translations of newspaper accounts of these riots, and I hope you'll take a look at them if you have a chance. But basically, uh, between July and September 1879, as cholera is spreading all over the country, uh, we see close to 30 of these riots uh, in seven different provinces, or prefectures, I should say. Uh, some so-called riots uh, included only 30 or 40 people, the worst of them uh, had more than 2,000 people involved. Some lasted a day. Others were ongoing periods of violence for 25 or 26 days. The prefecture that had uh, the most violence uh, was Niigata, which is on the northern part of the island of Honshu, Japan's seaside. Um, and these were, uh, so Niigata was the site not only of the greatest number, but also some of the most violent of the riots. Uh, and I'd like to just briefly describe some of what happened. Um, even before cholera reached Niigata in August, the prefectural government tried to intervene to limit the spread of the disease because they heard of its march northward, right, uh, from Beppu, the hot spring resort. So even before the disease reached um, Niigata, they issued an edict forbidding the sale of fish and shellfish and fresh fruits because these were foodstuffs that were uh, recognized and quite uh, correctly recognized to be uh, implicated in the spread of the disease. Um, there were people that ignored these regulations and continued to sell their goods and they were arrested and jailed. Um, but such efforts notwithstanding, outbreaks of cholera began in August. Um, and in the midst of this, on the 5th of August, a group of fishermen gathered at a local temple and began to, it seems, complain to each other about the regulations forbidding them to engage in their trade. Uh, in the midst of this crowd, which was growing ever larger until it reached about 600 people, rumors began to fly about. Um, there were charges that the police were seizing people before they were dead and carting them off to the crematorium. Uh, and this led uh, to uh, the mob of uh, five or 600 people going out and looking for policemen and they eventually found two of them and beat them. Uh, then they left those two policemen for dead and invaded the home of several wealthy merchants where they began to loot and destroy property. And eventually the uh, prefectural government sent in a large force of uh, 50 or 60 armed police who fired upon them in order to disperse the crowd. Then two days later rioting broke out again in a village just east of Niigata City, the site of the original riot. Uh, and in this case, the riot seems to have been sparked by a rumor 
that doctors and police were using the epidemic to kill healthy people and to cut out their livers to be sent to America. Now, and what's very interesting about this rumor, the cutting out the livers for an American market, is that it is all over the country. You find it in various sites. Um, and so you have this idea of police and doctors in league with some kind of vague foreign conspiracy to harvest body parts, which um, the rumor goes that these were used for medicine in various ways, the, the liver in particular. Um, and it may reflect this idea that in Chinese medicine, uh, bear livers, for example, are used in certain kinds of medicinal products. Another rumor that began to circulate was that there was a former samurai who was poisoning local wells, and that this was the cause of the disease. Uh, so uh, the mob uh, in this village east of uh, Nagasaki first goes to the home of this samurai, and they beat him to death. Uh, and then they happen upon a traveling peddler who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he falls subject to uh, mob violence. Then when the local police try to intervene, they too are attacked. And so throughout the period of uh, August 1879, Niigata is wracked by these kinds of events. Uh, at one point, an American missionary, I should say a British missionary who's uh, running a small church in this region is attacked by an angry mob and so on. Um, what I'd like to suggest is that these events in, a, in and around Niigata City in August 1879 revealed that so-called cholera riots were in fact very complex events involving multiple motives. It's clear that economic interest was part of what was going on. The fishermen who were involved in the initial riot were effectively deprived of their livelihood by prefectural policy forbidding the sale of fish and shellfish. And so I think they were reacting to that. But as the riots developed, uh, there emerged this feeling of widespread distrust of official policies and of the individuals who enforced these policies. What Nageo Sensei portrayed as a rational choice sacrificing the few to save the many was a principle that was not easily comprehended at the local level. And the result was that police and doctors and local physicians, uh, local officials, I should say, became the object of mob violence. Uh, and then thirdly, I think we see this persistent strain of anti-foreign xenophobia, which runs through the uh, entire experience uh, with cholera in the 19th century. Uh, the rumor that police were seizing the living to harvest their organs for a foreign market was widespread and I think reflects continued fear and suspicion about the motives of foreigners, Westerners, uh, toward Japan. Uh, and finally, and I didn't have a chance to talk too much about this, the outbreak of the disease also heightened pre-existing social tensions. So we see these pattern of attacking prosperous members of the community like merchants or village elites like former samurai. And so this suggests that the crisis of the disease had the power to stratify communities, exacerbating existing tensions of class and power and causing communities to dissolve into chaos. Now, in, in, by way of conclusion, I want to say that through this um, case study of Japan in the 19th century, I've tried to suggest some of the issues involved in um, 
figuring out how particular societies react to their encounter with a new and devastating epidemic disease. As we've seen, the initial response of the Japanese to cholera was to incorporate it into existing paradigms for understanding and responding to diseases that they knew and were familiar with. However, this strategy began to give way when the Japanese state in the 1870s began to play an overt role in managing the health of its citizenry. And in the wake of government efforts, I think it's undeniable that the popular understanding of cholera did shift quite dramatically. So by the late 1870s, we find little reference to plague deities in anybody's discussion of cholera. At the same time, the cholera epidemics of the last um, 30 years of the 19th century were never experienced as mere biological events. Rather, they were always socially social and cultural events that profoundly shaped how people related to their government and also how they related to each other. Okay. Thank you very much for your attention. Okinawa is now today the longest living people? Yes. On the map of an island? Uh, Okinawa, where is it, you mean? Yeah. Um, is it showing my eyes? They, they cut their calories, they eat fish. And That's right. They farm, and a lot of physical. Yes. Well, they live past 100, studying just those people. Yeah, um, I guess one of the interesting things that might contribute to that is Okinawa is still the one of the most uh, rural, uh, least industrialized of the Japanese prefectures, and so I think they've somehow escaped some of the stresses and tensions of uh, modern life, and that might contribute to it as well. Uh huh. Um, I'm just wondering how significant you would say Tokugawa um, policies were in the introduction and spread of the. For example, like being a closed country when it was introduced, um, that could have an effect. But like the alternate attendance policy, was that a means for cholera to spread northward uh, in the first uh, epidemic? You know, I haven't really read anything that has looked carefully at when those samurai processions were occurring and if it's possible to correlate the movement of the um, Sankin Kotai processions and the path of the disease. But I think that's a really potentially fruitful way to proceed. One of the policies of the Tokugawa government was that um, the uh, samurai, re uh, retain the samurai, their major samurai retainers had to spend every other year um, in the city of Edo and journey from their home domain to Edo. And so you had massive movements of people on a regular basis across the country. But I, I think that's a really interesting point. Because I, I could see that having an effect on early in 
custom where they take the shoes off before walking through the house. Would, is, did you run across that as far as like preventing the spread of cholera? Ah, uh, you know, those are well-established customs from very early on in Japanese society. Uh, and I don't know, um, I don't know of any sort of 19th century discussion of habits that talk about those as either good or bad uh, in terms of the spread of disease. Well, I, I should say in that regard that sort of um, social practices surrounding eating were, were different in, in this period according to class and also different um, from modern kind of customs, right? So um, people um, in, um, you know, sort of well-to-do um, households would never have shared, they didn't eat at the same table, um, and they never would have shared, um, you know, dishes of food. So people, you know, sat on tatami with their own small tray, with their own portions sort of there, you know, servants would bring it and put it in front of you in the room where you were dining. Um, so I don't think in the case of uh, sort of elite households that you find the sort of sharing of food is any way implicated in the spread of the disease. In the case of uh, sort of uh, poorer elements, particularly village elements, you did indeed see a kind of common pot and people scooping stuff out of it. So it may have been uh, part of the, this, yeah. People talk about how in 1822 the climate, the, the weather suddenly changed and it got unseasonably cold very quickly and that this may have been responsible, uh, you know, that the, the set of kind of um, uh, uh, environmental conditions that would keep the, the um, virus, virus uh, the, the bacteria being spread, uh, that came to an end. So there are these climactic factors that I think come into play about how quickly it spreads and, and um, how um, spatially um, uh, large the range is. Uh -huh. um, in the year that the morbidity, that there were 150,000 cases, um, what was the total population? Ah, uh, total population, that's a good question. I have to go back and check. Uh, I don't know right off. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, more like 80 million. 80 million. Yeah. So the, the, the morbidity rate overall was relatively low. That's right. I mean, the, the, one of the things that's going on is the government adopts a uh, profoundly pronatalist policy. So they are actively uh, policing well-established policies like the reliance on abortion and infanticide that were used to limit uh, family size. So we do see an interesting overall growth of population, in part because of pronatalist policy that seem to have uh, neatly um, stopped any kind of um, demographic stagnation. And so overall, the population is growing fairly dramatically over the course of the 19th century. Other questions? Thank you very much. Thank for you. Your